This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Colin Powell served as America's top soldier, top diplomat, top national security advisor in almost all of those cases, becoming the first black American to hold those positions. His death today at age 84 leaves behind a very complicated legacy, one of a trailblazer and one also tied with the controversial decision to invade Iraq. So we will go in depth. And yes, while Powell did die from complications related to COVID and he was fully vaccinated, there are many, many more factors at play. So we will get into that too. Also, former President Donald Trump back in New York City today being deposed for an old lawsuit against him. Can the lawyers in that room ask him about, oh, anything? The men and women working behind the scenes of TV, film, and commercial sets, they have that tentative contract in place to avert the uh, Hollywood strike, but it doesn't mean they're all happy. Growing evidence and COVID vaccine mandates are working, and uh, working pretty well. And the COVID pandemic was very, very lucrative for America's billionaires. Once again, the rich keep on getting richer. And isn't that the way the world is supposed to be? (laughs) (laughs) The rich get Uh, richer. They're very good at what they do. (laughs) Yeah, they certainly are. We start, though, uh, with the death of Colin Powell complications of COVID. Dr. Paul Sachs is a professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Thanks for being with us, doctor. So when the news first came out earlier this morning, some of the headlines said Colin Powell fully vaccinated dies from complications of COVID. And I suspect that those people who are out there who are anti-vaccination or questioning vaccination probably thought, ah, there, there you see it. These things don't don't work. But that's not actually the story here medically, is it? No, it really isn't. It's it's a story about the ongoing risk of COVID-19 for two populations in particular. One is older people, and he was in his 80s, and the second population are people whose immune systems are weakened. And we, of course, know now that he had multiple myeloma and was being treated for multiple myeloma, and that is one of the conditions that makes response to the vaccines lower. So COVID-19 is still a big threat. One of the best reasons for us to get vaccinated is to keep it from spreading to vulnerable people like like uh, Colin Powell. Yeah, so is part of this a story of all the unvaccinated people running around that can still spread this to the older, more vulnerable people like it, him? It, it, it sure is. And if you wanted to have any kind of... Uh, non-selfish motivation for getting vaccinated, it would be that you're helping others. We know now that the vaccines, while not perfect, one of the great benefits of the vaccines is it makes people less likely to get infected to begin with. And if you're less likely to get infected, you're less likely to pass it on to others. So uh, the best thing we can do to help protect people like Colin Powell is to get vaccinated because they themselves are not fully protected by the vaccines. Now, uh, Colin Powell, by virtue of the fact that, as you mentioned, was in his 80s, 84, uh, but also because of his medical condition, uh, was somebody who was a prime candidate, of course, to get a booster. And it's my understanding that actually he was supposed to get his booster sometime last week, but did not because of his deteriorating medical condition. Is it your guess that had he had a booster that might have helped? It's uh, impossible to know, and I will uh, say that having now experienced this many times with patients that I, I've seen, that, that some people just don't respond to these vaccines, and that's, that's true about all vaccines, not just the COVID vaccine. Remember, the way vaccines work is that they trigger our immune system into thinking they're encountering 
this virus or bacteria, and then our immune system sets up this protective wall. But if our immune system is already weakened, as it is for someone with myeloma who's getting treatment, then the vaccines simply aren't going to work. And this is one of the major reasons why we have vaccine mandates in schools, because some of the children who go to schools are immune compromised themselves. And a disease like measles, which is already pretty serious for kids, can be absolutely devastating for immunocompromised children. So, you know, get the vaccine. It works. It doesn't work 100% of the time, but it's the best thing we can do to protect ourselves and protect others. I can't stress that enough. For those in the age group, maybe not the certain conditions that he had. Is this also, though, the booster shot story that, hey, you know, there's a reason why it's recommended for the 65 plus crowd? Absolutely. I mean, the more data we get, uh, the more we realize that older populations have uh, they respond to the vaccine, but that their response isn't quite as robust as younger people. And so as a result, the boost boosters are recommended, and I would say people should get them sooner rather than later if they're eligible. And stay tuned for more news on boosters coming, coming likely this week uh, with the other vaccines, not just the Pfizer vaccine. Dr. Paul Sachs, professor of medicine, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And when we come back, we will take a close look at the impressive but also complicated legacy of Colin Powell. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, America's rich got a lot richer during the pandemic. Before that, the behind-the-scenes workers who make most of the film, TV, and commercial sets um, looking like they're going to avoid that strike doesn't mean they are all thrilled with the details about the new contract. Right now, though, uh, let's take a closer look at the uh, legacy and career of Colin Powell, who, as we mentioned, died earlier today at age 84. Uh, He was, of course, America's first black national security advisor. He was the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was the nation's first black secretary of state. That's a very impressive legacy, but there are also some other issues about his career that some people find problematic. Keith Boykin is author of Race Against Time, The Politics of Darkening America. He's a lecturer at Columbia University, served as a White House aide to President Bill Clinton. Also with us is Karen Atia, who's an opinion columnist at The Washington Post. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Keith, let's uh, start with you. Uh, No question that uh, Colin Powell's legacy is a formidable one and and, and certainly a role model to to all Americans, and in particular, uh, I would suspect, uh, black Americans. But there is that issue about the Iraq war, and that's a problem, isn't it? Well, it is a problem because Colin Powell was one of the chief uh, proponents of the Iraq war um, and famously went to the United Nations, held up that vial and claimed that uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, that they were hiding it in mobile weapons, hiding them in mobile weapons labs. And um, I think um, in hindsight, he regretted that. He said so. He regretted the war itself and his support for the war. And I think he felt that he was misled by a defense secretary uh, Rumsfeld and Vice President Donald Cheney, uh, Dick Cheney, and others. But um, you know, a lot of us who were speaking out at that time knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction, or we felt that because the UN weapons inspectors, Hans Blix and others, had failed to find them. So we found it unfathomable why uh, General Powell allowed himself, or Secretary Powell allowed himself, to be uh, to use to be used that way. But um, 
in the end, he was a company man. He was an institutionalist, and he was a longtime Republican who supported the policies of the party for uh, for most of his adult career until he started to change in the 2008 era after President Obama uh, ran for office, and he supported and endorsed him. So, Karen, how do we take all this and try and square it up? Or can you? I mean, legacies are complicated. No one is 100% perfect or, or not perfect. And he said, you know, the, the speech, that UN speech, that was always going to be the blot on his record. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's possible to, to have the, the both and the, the black and white and, and the gray in between when we're thinking about um, not only um, Colin Powell, but I think right now America in general is in a state of reflection about our, you know, catastrophic misadventures in um, the Middle East, I mean, namely with uh, the situation in Afghanistan, and then the situation um, not only for Iraqis, uh, but for um, the American uh, citizens and soldiers who lost their lives um, in these in these wars that were, you know, based upon um, misinformation, mistruths, and and lies, as as he said. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 complex again, and and I'm I'm someone who was very young at the time um, when Colin Powell made that speech uh, to the UN, and I remember also being flabbergasted by the fact that it seemed that America, the 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 system, the the apparatus, the war apparatus, had long kicked into gear, um, and the media at that time supported. Uh, what was going on in in Iraq, despite protests um, internally and from around the world, and I, I think right now what, what we're seeing in terms of contemplating, you know, Colin Powell's legacy, is well, he regretted it, but again, it, it's a reflection on of 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 America's of America, right? And I think it's it's complicated again because we look at Colin Powell and we see today how there, there are still so few black people in the upper ranks of the military and in foreign policy. And to many of us growing up, he was an example of breaking those barriers and barriers that still are still up, frankly, for, for black Americans and those who, who wish to serve um, in diplomacy and in the military. So on one end, you know, it's, it's possible to celebrate someone who, achieve that and it's also possible to be um to look back with regret all of us in many ways as americans about the his role and our role um in the world and causing so much misery to uh to people in the middle east keith uh, let's take uh the whole iraq debacle now off the the table and zero in on uh, here was a guy, Colin Powell, who, uh, of course, in later years ended up, he was, as you mentioned, uh, for a while he was an independent, and then he was, of course, in a Republican administration, but then he supported uh, both Barack Obama and Joe Biden and, and spoke uh, at the convention, right, that nominated Joe Biden. Uh, and there was a time during that period when he was considered, according to polling, one of the most trusted public servants, public figures in the country. Why? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. So it's hard to sort of divorce that from the issue of Iraq, because the reason why the Bush administration sent him out to testify uh, about Iraq was because he was the most trusted political figure in the country at the time, more trusted than George W. Bush, more trusted than Vice President Cheney or anyone else. Um, and this is something that Colin Powell has experienced his entire career. You know, I first met General Powell back in 1993 when I was working in the Clinton White House. 
And again, his credibility came into play on a different issue entirely. And that was the issue of gays in the military. Because if you recall, Bill Clinton ran in 1992, promising that he would lift the ban on gays in the military, and he never did. I was one of the people in the White House who was advocating for President Clinton to lift the ban. But, but on the other hand, General Powell was pushing against that. And of course, he was the top military advisor in the country, so he had far more credibility than I did. Um, and General Powell ended up winning that debate. But he later regretted that too. And he later uh, acknowledged that he supported gays in the military once, uh, once that policy started to change in the, in the Obama administration. So here was a man who I think used his credibility often to the advantage of the causes that he believed in, but also I think got manipulated by that because other people used his credibility to serve their own interest. And I think that's what we saw in the whole gays in the military debate that the people who were opposed to it saw him as the perfect uh, sort of foil, the perfect uh, person to sort of to, to lead the charge against that, that issue. And again, when we go to the Iraq war, he was the perfect person because of his credibility. But there are three issues where I think he changed. One, he was a black Republican who left the Republican Party and said he was no longer Republican. Uh, two, he supported the Iraq war, but he later said he opposed the Iraq war or regretted his support for it. And third, uh, he opposed gays in the military in the 1990s and later turned around and supported it. So here's a man who, even though I disagreed with him on some fundamental issues, he was able to evolve and grow. Keith Boykin, author of Race Against Time, Politics of Darkening America, lecturer at Columbia University, was uh, in the White House as an aide to Bill Clinton, and Karen Atia, opinion columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks to you both. When we come back, former President Trump facing off against a team of attorneys at the tower that bears his name in New York, Trump Tower. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Have you ever been to a, uh, a Hooters or heard about Hooters? And if you have, and I know a lot of you have, you know that their chief gimmick is the skimpy outfits worn by servers. Well, at the Texas Hooters restaurants, they are trying out even skimpier outfits. So we will talk with two of the servers there to find out why there's pushback. Right now, though, former President Trump faced questions from several lawyers today. Trump Tower, New York City, deposed as part of a lawsuit. This goes back years to 2015 when protesters outside the tower say they were roughed up by Trump's security guards. So how far do the lawyers go in questioning the former president? Harry Littman, former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Before that, she was a U.S. District Court judge and deputy assistant AG. Now, among other things, hosts the podcast Talking Feds. Harry, thanks for being back with us. So none of us are in the room, but how far could those lawyers go in asking, um, you know, what whatever they wanted, or was it very strict parameters? Yeah, well, they could go however far a judge would let them go, a trial court in the Bronx, and she appeared to let them go pretty far. We can, we haven't seen it yet. It'll be played for a jury at trial, but one of the things it looks like she let them question him on was all the incendiary statements he made at his various campaign rallies where he basically <laughs> exhorted his supporters to pound you know, the, to beat up the people who had opposing views. Now, that's that's a little far afield, you might think, from what he's being charged with here, but it's all part of a theory that he set the tone and kind of caused the his goons here to rough up the protesters. So it sounds like she let them go pretty far 
And the uh, attorney who was questioning him said, gave a little teaser of, well, he reacted about how you'd expect President Trump to react. So it seems likely that he got under his skin. Now, this is, uh, I presume, video taped, right? Uh, yes. Is there any possibility or any way that Mr. Trump can block that from becoming public? Short answer is no, at least when it becomes, I mean, he could settle the case. That's what he could do. But if, if a jury sees that videotape, then it's going to be, I think, an overwhelming case in the public's right to know for us all to see it, too. But, you know, he settled things before to keep out of hot water, like the Trump University lawsuit. Maybe this induces him to, to pay up. And at that point, he could keep it from the public eye. He is facing, what, another deposition, I think, right? The, the Summer Zervos case, and, and that's a contestant on The Apprentice who says that uh, she was uh, assaulted by him. I think that's, what, in the next couple months? Well, we think so, because the judges said any any depositions have to be over by the end of the year. Deadlines sometimes give way, but yeah, I mean, it looks like a stack of potential depositions. He's got 10 civil suits against him. And something about today is, you know, he had dodged it so long as president. Now it makes it kind of plausible. He, you know, They've drawn blood in a sense, and he's just an ordinary citizen who should face depositions. I think other judges will be more, will more readily order them going forward. How unusual, is it unusual for somebody who was a former president to uh, be summoned and testify for a civil or even a criminal proceeding? Not unusual at all if he's sued. I mean, he is an ordinary citizen, same as you and me now. Now, it so happens because of his conduct, he's facing, you know, a dozen lawsuits. That's what makes it unusual. But the fact that the courts would say, you're a former president now, you got time on your hands, you have no reason not to, you know, to, to ex- be excused, that, that's just the law. Harry Lippman, former U.S. attorney, Western District of Pennsylvania. He's got that podcast, Talking Feds. A crippling strike of Hollywood set workers might, might have been averted, but that does not mean by a long shot that everyone is happy with the potential deal. We will get into that when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So proposed contract deal between IATSE, union represents the bulk of workers behind the cameras, film and TV and commercial sets. Uh, There's some pay increases and there's some turnaround time changes. And people are happy because the headlines say they're happy, right? Yeah. Strike averted. Good news. Yeah. Great headlines. Yeah. But, but but there's always a but. Right? A, and there is a but. Colby Bachelor is a script coordinator and member of IATSE Local 871. She started the uh, hashtag IA Living Wage social media campaign. Colby, thanks for being with us. So we said that there is always a but. The, the headlines were all screaming, you know, a strike possibly averted, but not everyone is apparently totally thrilled. I'm still processing my own feelings towards it, and I'll be honest, I'm trying not to think too much about it because I really don't want to cloud my judgment before the full details are released. However, I do know that a lot of people are unhappy because, let's be honest, they haven't been paying attention until now. They never really attended the town hall meetings, and they weren't aware of what exactly was being negotiated. So that's why there has been like a lot of noise right now going on. 
from whatever details you do know, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts? Uh, what do you like? What don't you like? Well, um, so the one the the one detail that means very very most to me because I have been campaigning for it from for months now is the living wage. And currently, as it stands, is year one um, the four least paid crafts, which is the assistant production office coordinators, the art department coordinators, the script coordinators, which is my position, and the writer's assistants, they start off with year one making $23.50. Year two is $24.50, and year three is $26. It is still, unfortunately, the lowest paid when compared to other union positions. Um, do I think the new minimum is enough for what my craft specifically does? No. However, I do know that the union reps came to the table in the beginning with what they thought were feasible and fair. We've never had something like this happen before. Like the world literally turned upside down. There was the strike authorization, et cetera, and it just blew up. I hear that people are angry and I hear that people want more. But I also do know that we did make a major leap for the fight in fairer wages. Do you feel, though, that you guys had the firepower on your side or whoever was doing the bargaining for IATSE? Because, you know, all these other unions were supporting you and then it was just the studios and it was like, here's this huge authorization vote, 98% or whatever it was, saying we're going to go, we're going to go on Monday. And then over the weekend something happened and we know how negotiations work. You give a little, you get a little, but you're still Mm -hmm. feeling like, you guys could have gotten so much more. Did, did whoever was at that table, did, did they not push hard enough? It's, it's hard to say for me because I was not on the table. And the only person who can honestly give that, uh, give that summary is, that, is, is those people who were attending every single day on the table. I will know from uh, behind the perspective, like as a union member, we gave everything we got. I mean, we shared our stories, we built the support, we had so many things going for us. So until we see the full details of what exactly was um, part of the negotiations, I cannot form an opinion on that. Do you ever give any serious thought to changing occupations, perhaps to something more lucrative? (laughs) I oh every single day every single night. But the thing is, is that what good is that going to do? I am a script coordinator, but I want to be a paid writer, and eventually, I want to be a showrunner. And I understand that you know, it's getting paid a lot higher would be a lot better. But the problem is, if I did move on to a different department, that's not going to fix anything. Do you think this becomes? An issue of people actually saying, you know what, it's not good enough, we're going to vote no, and then we'll see what happens then. Or is this, you know, by the time it all goes into writing, and who knows how long it's going to take the lawyers to put it into contracts and all that, by the time you really actually see it, do people just kind of hold their nose and go, well, it's not the best, but it's something? (laughs) Um, I would love the answer to that question myself. Um, I'm very, very curious to see what will happen once we see it in document and once we talk it out with our business reps of why they came to this decision, what are the pros and cons of certain options? Because we've never done this before. And 
like in a way when union reps and when other people say the words i don't know it's not because they don't care it's because they genuinely do not know the answer right now they don't want to give you the wrong information and it also shows how absolutely monumentous this moment is is the fact that we are on unprecedented territory here and I would like to say this, though, that the fight for fairer wages and better working conditions doesn't stop at the negotiations, does not stop at the negotiations table. It's the effort that everyone has to make every single day in our own lines of work to improve what it was before. Colby Bachelet, script coordinator, member of IOTSE Local 871. Coming up, more evidence that COVID vaccine mandates are having the desired effect. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, hospitals, medical networks, among the first big organizations to implement COVID vaccine mandates. And there were early fears that uh, there would be sizable numbers of medical workers who would refuse to get vaccinated and perhaps would, you know, leave. And that would create all kinds of labor shortages. Well, a few months on from when these first mandates were put in place, the evidence is mounting and the evidence is showing that the mandates are working. Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So we're seeing pretty good compliance with these. Yes, I think it depends on the particular industry and the situation. But in many cases, there are a lot of people who, you know, just haven't really focused on getting vaccinated and they just need the prompt from their employer saying you really need to get vaccinated and then they go out and do it. You know, uh, besides the employer, uh, President Biden has on a couple of occasions as late as last week, all but said that it's a company's patriotic duty and an employee's patriotic duty, unless they they have a medical issue, I suppose, uh, to be vaccinated. Does that have a role in this? Do you think just it sounds hokey and it sounds old fashioned, but uh, patriotism? Absolutely. Um, It makes sense because in a way, um, what we do affects the health of others. And I think that it's good for you to be vaccinated, but it's also good for your family if you're vaccinated. It's good for people that you work with if you're vaccinated. And I think what the president is saying is that, you know, if we think about ourselves and our responsibility to other people, that's a pretty good reason to get vaccinated, too. Did you have the fears early on that we'd see worker fallouts and, and shortages and all that? We mentioned the medical systems. We're seeing compliance in like the high 90s for a lot of them, a lot of the healthcare systems. So it didn't materialize. But were you worried that, that it might? Well, I wasn't that worried for major healthcare systems because in many places, um, particularly those that are doing them, they, they already require vaccination against influenza. And so, um, and I know from my experience in Maryland that pretty much everyone got vaccinated against influenza when that happened. And I don't see a huge reason why people wouldn't go on and get vaccinated against, you know, a horrible disease that they see with their own eyes killing people. Um, I do think that some of these other industries, particularly where people may be able to just walk away from the industry entirely because there are other jobs for them, they, they may have a harder time. So I, I don't think the full story of this is written, but I, I do think there are a lot of people who really just need a prompt and are perfectly happy to get vaccinated when they get one. 
Are, are you uh, baffled? Uh, I mean, it's hard to be baffled, I suppose, these many months into the pandemic, but maybe you are. Are you baffled by the continued resistance uh, on, by a sizable number of people? Not all. Certainly, most people are getting vaccinated. Uh, and some people have other reasons. I, I mentioned medical reasons. They can't. Uh, maybe they have uh, you know, issues at home where they can't spare the time to get vaccinated that easily. So I get all that. But for those who are just adamant and they say, oh, we need more information or, you know, this is uh, still experimental when it's really not. Uh, are you baffled by all that at this point in time? Um, I am really horrified by the amounts of misinformation that are out there about the vaccine. And just the fact that people can go on Facebook or go on Twitter or, or whatever they do, and just see just so much that's not true about the vaccine. Um, I think that that is just really um, terrible. And it is contributing to a lot of people really not knowing what the right thing to do is. And I think that is behind um, for, for a number of people why they haven't gotten vaccinated yet. So, you know, I think that it's easy for some you know, people to say like, you know, what's, what's wrong with people who aren't getting vaccinated? The evidence is so clear. But from the perspective of those people, the evidence may not be clear because they're just just awash in, in misinformation. And does that explain the gap between people who have had other vaccines and other job sites that have required it or school systems or whatever it is, but then are dead set against this one, like this one is, is somehow different than all the others? Um, I think in part, it, it may well. Um, for, for a bunch of people um, explain that. And it is really unfortunate because, you know, the uh, it's just so painful to read these stories of people who get sick with COVID and, you know, as they're gasping for breath, they go, okay, I'll try the vaccine now and it's too late, you know, and um, it's just, it's just terrible. And, you know, they, they have reasons for why they didn't get vaccinated. And, and then they kind of look afterwards and say like, you know, why did I believe that that random post? So, um, instead of my doctor. So, so let me ask you this, doctor, when and I'm, I'm being very specific in saying when and not if when we have another pandemic, what should we do differently? What lessons should we have learned from this uh, current pandemic and carry that forward? That is a very important question to ask. And I think some of those lessons are clear and others we really need to take the time to, to tease out. When it comes to vaccinations, we should have a much better system of distributing them right off the bat. In a way, I think sort of the chaos, if you remember the first few months of distributing vaccines didn't really help with vaccine confidence because it just, even though it's very different distributing the vaccine and making the vaccine, for some people it just seemed you know, very confusing and that may have turned them off. So I think we have to get distribution to be more efficient from the, and effective from the beginning. Um, also, everything that we do, we should be planning um, with the goal of having people understand the science um, that's gone into it and, and, you know, having the tools to build their confidence. I think we did some of that well. In this case, I think the FDA shared the data that the decisions were based on, uh, convened advisory committees, um, got a lot of good information out there. But then we didn't, you know, kind of carry that all the way through, giving tools to local and state health officials making people really available, providing funding early on to um, uh, local organizations to be able to get the facts out. And then I would also add that I think we need um, to have a lot uh, better science on 
how to communicate about vaccines and how to answer people's questions and fears. And then the last thing I'll mention is we have to have a way to um, control just lies and misinformation because the best laid plans can be severely undermined if people are just picking up a torrent of mistruths. Dr. Joshua Sharpstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and uh, Community Engagement, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. More in-depth on the way, another half an hour. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, the rich get richer. So what else is new? They tend to do that. (laughs) That, that, Yeah, that's kind of what they do, right, is they get richer. During the COVID pandemic, uh, that certainly happened. America's billionaires, the richest of the rich, saw their wealth grow by 70 percent, or that comes out to a collective $2.1 trillion over the course of the last year. That's more than I have in my checking account. Also, the raw number of billionaires jumped. Uh, If you were rich heading into the pandemic, you were richer as we hopefully come out of the pandemic. You're not one of those people that like, I do this because I love it, you know, and I go to my yacht on the weekends. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Robert Frank covers America's Wealthy for CNBC. He's with us now. Uh, Robert, thanks. So first off, this surge is not like a tiny one. We said 70%. What is it driven by? Is it all the stuff they have in the markets? And then they rode that up when we saw the rebound? Yeah, a lot of it's stocks. Remember, you know, the stock market was riding pretty high just before the pandemic on the tax cuts and the strong economy. And then in March of 2020, the market crashed and then, then came back. So the billionaire stats you're talking about are really measuring from the bottom of that market crash in, in 2020 until the present. So it's a, it's, it's a little bit exaggerated when you look at how much wealth, wealth is created because it depends on what your starting point is. But when you look at the amount of wealth created during this pandemic, and, and that is an unprecedented wealth boom. You know, we, we all know that one of the uncomfortable truths about the past year and a half is that the wealthy got wealthier and a lot of people, it sort of exposed the inequality we have in this country and the inequities. But the speed and the scale of wealth creation in this past year and a half are almost unprecedented in American history. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but most of it came through the stock market. So if you look at the top 1%, look, they've always owned most of the stocks in America. The top 1% uh, have always owned just under half. But during the pandemic, the top 1% and the top 10% actually grew their share of market wealth and they grew their overall wealth because the market exploded. So here's the amazing stat. The top 10% of Americans by wealth own 89% of the individually held stock. That means that the bottom 90% of Americans own only 11% of the stock market when you look at stocks held by Americans. And you know, again, this is a market that has always been tilted toward the top, but we thought during the pandemic with all these retail investors coming in the market. We heard about the Robin Hood crowd. We heard about the tens of millions of people sitting in their basement or on the couch trying to trade stocks for the first time. We thought that would translate into a slightly better distribution of wealth when it came to the stock market. And in fact, and what surprised me when I looked into these numbers was we saw the opposite. We did have millions more investors in the market, but the wealth from the market actually became more concentrated 
at the top. So is it that the old axiom that, you know, to make a lot of money, you have to have a lot lot of money? Is that what's at play here, or is the system somehow rigged? Well, it's partly that. Look, if you look at how wealth is made in America, if you look at the top 1%, the way the wealthy get wealthy is through capital, making money from money, whether it's investments in the stock market, private investments, it's capital. If you look at the way most Americans make their wealth, it's their house and it's their wages and it's the savings that come from that. And over the past few decades, especially during the pandemic, capital making money from money has done the best. So then you get the lawmakers saying we need to tax the wealth, not the income. Right. And and that is something that, you know, I've been covering wealth for 18 years. When I first started, the idea of a wealth tax was not even really discussed or considered. And this was an idea that really first came around with Elizabeth Warren, uh, her campaign. And now, although the wealth tax itself, which is just imposing an X percent tax on someone's total wealth, uh, if you're above 50 million or 100 million, whatever it is, that doesn't appear to have any legs in Congress. What does appear to have legs in Congress, and we'll see where all this goes, is to your point, to get at wealth, which a lot of which goes untaxed. You look at Jeff Bezos, you look at Elon Musk, they can just, you know, they're worth over a hundred, in one case, close to $200 billion. They can just borrow against their stock and have cash to live on and fly their jets to the, wherever they want to go or their rockets to the moon or space, wherever they want and never have to pay tax on that. If you look at Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, uh, they're worth, uh, over $100 billion in, in Bill Gates' case, he'll give almost all that to charity. So all that wealth will never get taxed. And what they're looking at in Congress now are ways to get at that wealth without a wealth tax. And so you can do that through the capital gains tax. You can maybe do that through the estate tax. But that is the debate in America right now. How do you tax wealth in addition to taxing income? Because the real inequality in America is in wealth inequality not so much income inequality. Quick quick answer to this, because we're running out of time. Will that 1% ever allow Congress to write laws that is going to take money away from them in any meaningful way? (laughs) That is is the great question. We shall see. It was fascinating because one of the key parts of Biden's plan called for what's known step up in capital gains. That was basically saying, if you die, you can't pass all your stuff to your kids without paying a tax, which is what they can do now. By the time it got to the House and all those wealthy lobbyists and companies got in there and lobbied, it it amazingly just vanished, it disappeared. We'll see what happens if if it stays on in some Senate version, but right now it appears you're right, the wealthy have come in and quietly gotten rid of a key part of that Biden plan that would have taxed the wealth of the wealthy. Robert Frank covers America's Wealthy for CNBC. Hooters asking servers to wear shorter shorts. Is that even possible? Listening to KNX In Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Hooters, uh, which isn't uh, always known for conservative dress, for its wait staff, I think that's probably an understatement, don't you think, uh, is trying out its, uh, at its Texas stores shorter shorts for its servers. And not all the servers are happy about this. A series of videos on TikTok 
pushing back. And now Hooters, well, they're making some changes. Samantha Hernandez, HZ Samantha on TikTok, is a server at the Hooters in Dallas, Texas. Giselle Wynn, Gigi Wynn, and a server uh, in Houston. That's where she works at the Hooters there. Both ladies vocal about their feelings on the uniform change on TikTok. Uh, Samantha, let's start with you. Describe for us, since this is radio, the uniform now and then the uniform that they were trying to make the change to. Okay. So um, the uniform back then was like just like spandex, almost like Nike pros, and now it's more like of a high-waisted bikini, but a very skinny bikini, if you know what I mean. All right, uh, and Giselle, I, I'm I'm curious. I mean, you know, as we kind of su- suggested in the beginning, I mean, Hooters is not exactly known for its conservative dress for its staff uh and you you do work that you took a job there so why are you shocked or are you shocked when i first got hired i was okay with the longer shorts because that's what i was uh i grew up looking at and i wear the same thing when i go to dance or cheer anything like that so it was just regular clothes to me and i was not expecting a uniform change to a shorter cut How did they say that this was going to happen? Was it kind of just, here's your new uniform, and uh, try these on, and and that's it? Or what happened? Um, A few months ago, we actually got the orange shorts in that new style. And basically, management just called us into the office and said, these are the new shorts. You only get two pairs. Like, we're not allowed to wear the old ones anymore, so we have to wear the shorter ones. Okay, Samantha, uh, how many of your uh, co-workers feel uh, the same way that you feel, if any? Well, honestly, not really any of them feel that way. I feel like a lot of them were actually waiting for the new cut, and they were very excited to actually see the new cut. Okay, but you weren't excited. Why? Because um, whenever I got hired, like Giselle said, I was wearing the old shorts because that's what we had. And I took a vacation for like a week and I came back and everybody had those new shorts on. And it was just very like shocking because it was a very dramatic change. Giselle, do you agree with what Samantha just said? Do most of your coworkers, as far as you know, do they object, not object? Um, so far, Samantha's pretty spot on. My, a lot of my coworkers actually like enjoy the new shorts because uh, we lost a lot of our old workers, so anybody that's getting hired right now, are they've only had the new shorts. So that's what they're used to. So do you feel like it's a, a you-against-them kind of thing, or did you just need to take a stand for, for yourself, and, and that's why some of the TikToks were made, right, which got a lot of traction because you're holding them up and you're going, do you guys see these things? These are these are way too small. Yes. Um, I don't think it's me against anybody. It's just they're letting me express my opinion because I truly believe that they are very short. I wasn't expecting that. And the black shorts are actually tighter than the orange ones. So when we got the new ones, I posted about it not thinking it was going to start anything because I saw other girls doing it. But now that's picked up some traction, um, I'm getting a lot more attention at my store for it. Samantha, what do you want the company to do? Well, I would at least like for the sides to be a little bit longer, which I did tell a lady who actually came in asking us about them. Or just, like, go back to the old shorts to the people who really want to go back to the old shorts. And what have they told you? Um, They really, well, at my store, they want everybody to look the same, so they really aren't allowing us to wear the old shorts anymore. Okay, and Giselle, what about yours? Because we've seen some some of the articles out there that say, okay, now they're giving people the option. You can go back to the old ones 
if you want to, do, do you get that option if, if Samantha doesn't? Um, I do not get that option. I still talk to my managers and everything, and they still say that we have to wear the new shorts because that's what's in right now. They're the new style, and we want to all look the same. So what are you going to do now? I mean, you have all the attention. You don't want to wear these because obviously you don't feel comfortable in them, but you want your job, obviously, because you probably like working there or else you wouldn't keep the job, right? Yes. Um, honestly, there's not much I can do besides, uh, talk to the managers a little bit more to see if they'll allow us to wear the shorter, like the regular shorts. But for now I have to keep my job because it's what's paying my bills and my tuition. But until then, if it keeps up and I'm too uncomfortable in them, I'll probably switch my job. And Samantha, you? Yes, I would probably do the exact same thing. I would definitely love to wear the old shorts and I would definitely stay for as long as I can because I do not really like these new shorts. There are probably still some people driving around, though, that are saying, and they have a, an image of Hooters in their head, and they're going, well, okay, you, you choose to work there, it's going to be short, so what if they're a little bit shorter? I mean, I'm sure you tried them on, you have to wear them. What really goes through your head when you're walking around in those? Well, honestly, we do wear tights, so it's not like we really feel anything, or it's not really that much, like, of a difference whenever you're whenever you just put them on but once you look in the mirror that's whenever there's like a whoa like dang it really does look like very short when and i guess when both of you took your your jobs uh and this goes back to what we said at the very beginning i mean you know hooters has a particular business model now you may not like it and a lot of people don't like it and a lot of women don't like it but obviously a lot of women don't mind it and and men don't mind it but when you went in there i, I get that you're saying that the shorts were not as short when you took the job but but isn't part of their business model, let's face it, is is they want guys to come in and and guys are attracted to the women who are servers there. Isn't that kind of what they do, whether you like it or not? That's kind of their, their business, yes? Yeah, I it definitely is. It's just we were used to um, the old shorts for like almost like decades. So the fact that they just changed it like so sudden was just like crazy to me, you know? And even the customers are shocked whenever they come in. They're like, oh, wow. And Giselle, the change just without even any ask or any input from you guys, like they cut them even even smaller, even shorter, and, and maybe they should have said something first? Yeah, I would have appreciated if they uh, would have let us know ahead of time. But instead, we just came to work one day and they gave us the new shorts and we had to go change in the bathroom and wear them. If That's they it. If they would have let you know ahead of time, what would you have done, do you think? I honestly would ask them to see how short it was because I wouldn't be that comfortable in it, but I didn't know how short it was going to be, and I was already at my shift. So I'm a little bit used to them now, but they still do make me very uncomfortable. And with all the new, like, publicity about the new shorts, a lot of people are coming in and just being very um, inappropriate with the new shorts. So I just don't know how long I'm going to work there. All right, Giselle Wynn, a server in Houston, Texas. Samantha Hernandez, server in uh, Dallas. HZ Samantha, GG Wynn on TikTok. And they got a lot of traction uh, for posting about those shorts that they are not happy with. Uh, thanks, thanks for talking to us. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.